Good morning again. It's so good to see you today on this rather cool morning. And uh, I hear more this week, towards the middle of the week, it's going to get up into the 40s. Like, seriously? To 40s? Did you hear that? Yeah, I know. I'm looking forward to it. Are you? Yes. I've had enough. Don't you find, in the course of your everyday life, doing mundane, exciting, whatever kinds of things, that your view of God can be too small? Can I just get a show of hands? Do you find this? Is this, 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 is, this is common to all of us, that we can somehow in our hearts and in our minds limit the ability of God, <laughs> which then, you know, limits the risks of faith that we're willing to take and put out there. So there's this ongoing tension. There's lots of tensions in life, and one of them is this ongoing tension between being protective of our families, our space, whatever, cautious, uh, practical, right? Practical, and balancing that against being on mission for our God that He has clearly revealed to us in our Word, that in His Word, that we are seeing every week that we're going through the Gospel of John. The mission is, is just there. It's in black and white. It is so clear. And that mission from God is potentially always risky. Have you found that? Like when you think, this is really what God wants me to do, and it's risky. It is. It requires faith. And so we limit God so that we don't have to put ourselves out there. And I think particularly this morning of the Perhais, perfect example, staying in the Ukraine while others are leaving to go back to their homes to minister to the people that God has placed under their care, and others have decided, no, it would be better to leave. It's tension, right? I think of certain missionaries that we are supporting um, who are ministering or who are very soon going to be ministering in dangerous, potentially hostile, close to the gospel countries. I think of the writer of the first song we opened with, the great reformer in the 1500s, Martin Luther remaining in his hometown to minister to people during a deadly epidemic while other Christians fled the city. Much agony and debate goes into these decisions that you and I make on a daily basis about what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Families disagree, have you noticed? Families even split, and the repercussions and the residue can even last generations. The bottom line is this, though, for every one of us here this morning and watching online. Each of us must sift the Scriptures, not just surf the Internet, right? And make our own decision. I'm not going to make it for you. I can guide you with God's Word, but the decision lies with each of us. It's why we go through Scripture every Sunday morning when we're together, that we value this time, don't we? 
And now we return to the Gospel of John. And this week we're going to be in chapter 6. I hope you read ahead because it's a long chapter. All right? hope you're reading ahead and the, the study guides are on the back table and they're online and there's nothing stopping you except yourself. And we're going to look at signs number four and five today out of the seven that John chose to share with us to sh- tell us what? What, what. what do all the signs point to? That Jesus is the Son of God. All right, that's it. The whole purpose of this gospel. After this, chapter 6, verse 1, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. After what? Well, the confrontation that he's just had with the leaders, the Jewish leaders in the capital city of Jerusalem over the healing of a man on the Sabbath, the holy day. And defending that miracle, that decision and choice he made that day by claiming he's equal with God, okay? There's no debate here. He claims he's equal with God. And he capped that all off with a slap to their face, literally, with the last verse in chapter 5. After this is where we're going in 6. For if you believed Moses, so this is where you're putting your, this is where you're staking your claim. You're saying, here's what Moses said, and it's in the Bible. Well, you would believe me if you really did believe Moses, because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You claim belief for what you do and what you practice and the choices you make for you and your family based on the Bible but you actually don't even believe in the Bible about what's most important, that I am the Son of God. Verse 2, and a large crowd was following him. So he goes up up this mountain with the disciples because he wants alone time with them, but that's very difficult to get when you are Jesus the Christ. So this large crowd is following around. Why? And this is the key. This is so key. I hope that we get this. This is key to understanding those times and our times in which we live because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. That's why they were following him. Probably if you and I are a typical, are you a typical human being? Yeah, most of you. Um, That's why we'd be following him. Like, it's like, yeah, let's, that's, where, that's what's happening in our day and age. Let's go there. So, it ha- so I'm asking myself, what attracts me to church? Better yet, what is it that really attracts me to Jesus Christ? And you. Verse 3, Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, right, that, holiest of days for the Jews, the feast of the Jews was at hand. So it's just around the corner. And John tells us that this event is in the air. Everybody prepares for it. There's a lot of preparation. You've got to have that lamb to sacrifice, to eat and to sacrifice. And, and, and it gives us a better feel for what's about to go down in verse 5. And lifting up his eyes, talking with his disciples, he looks up and then sees that a large crowd was coming towards him. So Jesus turns to Philip, one of the disciples. He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? (laughs) And he said this, it says in the text, John was there, and he's given us some insight here, and he realized this probably much later. John says, and Jesus said this to test him, Philip, 
For he himself, Jesus, knew what he was going to do. He, knows, he knew exactly what's going to happen here. And here's where we revisit what I asked at the outset of the message today. Don't you find that your view of Jesus can be too small? I know I can, and I do. And God continually tests our faith. So many different ways. We could probably march up dozens of you right now to say how over the past week or two, God tested your faith, put you to the test. God tests us, not like teachers at school or parents, because He needs to know where we're at in comprehension of spiritual things. God does not need to know. Why? Because God knows everything already. So that's not the reason for the test. It's not like, oh, I I thought you understood that. (laughs) No, He already knows you don't understand it. The test is to reveal in us, to us, the areas where we lack faith and need to depend on Him so much more. It's for our good, His glory, our good. God tests us all the time, His glory, our good. Philip, Jesus asks, where are you at? Where are you at about me? And Jesus knew it was going to go down. And his concern is to teach these men who are following him in the very, very uh, short window of time that he has left about what's important, what's really important, and who provides all that is needed to do what is really important. Philip answered him, verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread, (laughs) that wouldn't even be enough for each of them to get even a little bite Philip's response betrays the fact that his mind can still only think um, on the level of the marketplace, that his mind can only think in terms of this natural world and just how it operates. And you you probably often said this, well, that's just the way it is. That's how things work. But God doesn't work that way. 200 denarii represents about eight eight months of wages for a common laborer. And Philip's saying, that's not even going to scratch it. So one of the other disciples hears what's going on, and Andrew, uh, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, whoa, well, there's a boy over here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What is that for so many? Yeah, we haven't got enough money, and we definitely don't have enough food on hand. And you can almost, I don't know, because we we, no, nobody took a video of it, but you could, you could see Jesus maybe going, Andrew, Andrew, Andrew. Philip, Philip, Philip. Our view of Jesus, which is the whole point of why John wrote the entire gospel in the first place, is often so very small. In the previous chapter, Jesus has just claimed equality with God the Father, and He's pointed to the insurmountable evidence to back it up, all those amazing and audacious claims. Jesus said, I've done it, and I'm saying it. And now He drives home the verbal truth with a visual lesson. How many of you like pictures? 
Yeah, yeah, I do too. I mean, I learn. I'm very, very pictorial. And, and I love it. And, I, and I, it's probably why my parents bought me the Bible with all the pictures in it when I was a kid. It's like, and now he drives home that point. Jesus wants his disciples to see. He wants them to see what they had not really grasped when they had heard. That he was none other than God in the flesh. So, so when Jesus asked Philip this question, it's an impossible question to answer, right? He, he presents him with an impossibility. And Philip did acknowledge the impossibility of the request that, humanly speaking, yeah, it can't be done. <laughs> this, this is no way. We're out of luck. <laughs> of course, it has nothing to do with luck. We're, we're out of luck. But Philip stopped there. This is where you and I stop so often. He should have acknowledged, this was a great opportunity to acknowledge that the only possible answer to impossible questions lies with God. This is when you turn to God, who, by the way, is standing right in front of him in the flesh. I mean, come on. And that's something that Jesus is always ultimately getting at with these men and with you and I. Oh, you might hear it. Hopefully on Sunday you hear it. You might sing it all together now. You might even memorize it. But do you live it? Do you really live it in the practicality of everyday living when there's all the pressures and all the peer pressures? Well, in his coming Sermon on the Mount that Matthew records for us in great detail that we went over, I think it was last summer, he says, okay, do you get it? Because if you do, you'll be humble. You'll love. And guess what? Not just your friends, not just your family, you'll love your enemies. <laughs> He'll say, you will be in the habit of pursuing righteousness, always doing the right thing. And like Philip today, I think we tend to think things through on a purely human level. But we can't help it because we're, because we're human. But if you're born again and been blood-bought by Jesus Christ, so you've been born again, you're being renewed in your heart and your mind, you're being transformed to think more like Jesus. If that's true, and that is true for me, that's my testimony, hopefully, hopefully it's yours, but we sure can also be guilty of omitting to take into consideration the infinite power of a gracious God, can't we? We get sidetracked by the craziest little fears. And we can also go too far the other way, where we, we expect God to do everything, and we don't take on any responsibility because God's going to do it. So we just sit back and watch God work. Or, even worse, we make up, up these outlandish, and below the surface you see their self-serving requests. And in effect, we put God to the test. If you will do this, then I will do that. Putting God to the test. No, 
He's the one who tests. Either way, or any of those three ways, our view of Jesus can be too small, too limiting, or definitely too self-serving. Since Jesus said, after hearing these two guys say their conclusion, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so great. It's going to be comfortable at least. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And most commentators assess that the whole crowd, probably including women and children, could have numbered up to 20,000 people. That's a lot. I mean, that's the scene that they saw coming across the field, toward, the, up the mountain towards them. If you had 20,000, I mean, can you, I can't even picture it. That's the scene that greeted the disciples. That was the scope of the challenge that Jesus was presenting. How are we going to feed all these people? Do you know what 20,000 people look like? Well, I got a picture for you. Some of you may have seen this. Yes, that's Little Caesars Arena. It it seats about 20,000 plus people. So when it's full, it would be like you walk in there for a hockey game to watch the Red Wings win. So you walk in there and you're asked, they pick you out and they say, You've got, your job tonight is to feed everybody. So look at that. I mean, I mean, seriously. First, your first question is, how much is this going to cost? <laughs> right? Because I don't have that much money. And then second, even if I had the money, is there enough Little Caesar, Caesar's pizzas to go around for everybody? That's a lot of bacon. Baking. <laughs> but I wouldn't mind bacon on it. But. I digress. So Jesus, what does he do here? He kind of ignores um, Philip, and he goes with the impossibility presented by Andrew to make the point sink in even more. Sign number four, here it comes. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves... And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. The prophet. The one John the Baptist said he was not. The prophet. The one Moses promised would be coming. The prophet. The one prophet who Jesus Christ is. And remember, John told us that Passover isn't far off. So it, it was that special meal reminding of the deliverance from the enslaving enemy, the Egyptians, of, of the passing over of the angel of death over the land of Egypt. And if the blood from that specially prepared lamb was on the doorposts of your home, your firstborn was spared. The people are connecting the dots, all right? They know their Bible. They're connecting the dots. Um, the prophet oh, could, could rescue, could rescue from om, uh, Roman oppression and taxation. Um, with the Passover season being so close, speaking of deliverance, could all these signs and wonders that this 
great teacher, and now we call him the prophet, is doing, be suggesting that the occupying Roman forces might soon get the same treatment that Moses dispensed on the nation of Egypt? Is this, is this what's going to happen? And this great teacher has just miraculously provided bread for us to eat, just like God provided manna through Moses for, for the people in, in, the, in the Exodus when they're in the wilderness. And what's more, they've just collected how many baskets? Twelve. Numbers are a big deal for to the Jews and through the Old Testament. Numbers are, and they discover these 12 baskets, one basket for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The dots are creating this cool picture. They are, they are about to cue up the victor's anthem. We are the champions, right? Because there's no time for losers because we are the champions of the world. They're getting ready for the confetti parade. They just, they're just like, wow, it's happening and we're here. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So what's the problem? Why didn't Jesus go along with the crowd? Isn't this why he has come? He's the Messiah. Why did Jesus feed all these people in the first place? Was it just because they were hungry? And what is it that God, through the apostle, the disciple John, wants future readers like you and I to understand? Well, first and foremost, we got to understand it's not God's time yet. Yet. Oh, the triumphal entry and the confetti parade is coming very soon, but not yet. God's timing is rarely our timing. Have you figured that out? It's why we are often impatient. It's often why we shake our head when we watch the news. It's, it's, it's why we… Uh, all those things. It's rarely our timing, no matter how well-meaning and enthusiastic we are, and our ideas, and, and our, even our motives, how pure our motives might be. We don't ever see the full picture, so we will never fully get it. Again, our faith is too small. God, you have this, and I have to believe that you have this. It doesn't look like you have it, but I've got to believe you do. Yes, our view of Jesus can be too small, and second and lastly, our hope for rescue can often be too self-serving. The Jews at that time assumed this, that when they read their Scriptures, and they read the Scriptures speaking about a Messiah, a, a Savior, a Rescuer, that the Scriptures were referring to one who would rescue the nation from its physical troubles and oppression. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? And Christians today often assume that when they read the Scriptures and they talk about this new life, uh, an abundant life, a free life that comes to us through the Messiah, through the Rescuer, through the Savior Jesus, that the Scriptures are referring to a life of physical well-being. 
uh, a life of great wealth for everyone, uh, healing from sickness, every sickness, and all the other misrepresentations that I'm hearing uh, that are rising, especially within our country, through something that's a lot like Christian nationalism. We need our own flag. No, we don't. The Jews were limited by this kind of thinking. The Jews were limited with this kind of an interpretation of God's coming salvation and what it's really about. They only viewed the work of the coming king, this Jesus who's speaking to them on the mountain in terms of a victory, a physical victory over their political enemies and no more taxes. You guys going to sign, vote for that? Yeah. Occupying forces, gone. Servitude, done with. But the lesson that Jesus is teaching and, and the work that he had actually come to do were so much bigger than all that. The bigger enemy that Jesus had come to fight and defeat was sin. Your sin, my sin. The bigger problem was all of mankind's, including Jews, alienation from God and outright rebellion towards God in the way we act every day. The Jews' salvation as well as our salvation does not have to do with a kingdom that will pass away, but a heavenly kingdom that will last forever. So what happens next? Well, sign number five is if that wasn't enough. Jesus walks on water. This, is, this was one of my favorite stories when I was a kid because I grew up in the era where you had flannel graph. You guys know what that is? Some, some, some of you younger are going, flannel who? Yeah, I've got a flannel shirt, but like, no, flannel graph is where you stick stuff on a something that sticks on there. And when you're a kid in class, you always want to be the one, I want to put Jesus on the water. You know, and then the teacher would let you come up and stick him on the water. And it's, anyway, that's a little bit of heritage from me. And this is primarily for the disciples, right? Nobody else sees this. Verse 16, so when evening came, so the disciples are gone on the boat, Jesus is up on the mountain, the people have all gone home because they're full. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum, which is basically their home base that Jesus operated out of in Galilee. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a, a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Because <laughs> if, if you read other Gospels' accounts of this, because they thought it was a ghost. They're like, what? We're dead. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. I love that. That's one you memorize and say throughout the week. And then they were glad, not afraid, they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Someone has des described this miracle as three different miracles dealing with three different dimensions all at the same time. So I just want to share that with you because I think this is pretty neat. First, you've got the miracle of distance. So there are geographic details that the Jewish 
John's Jewish readers reading this would, would completely understand and picked up on, but we miss out on because, first of all, most don't like geography and we're not Jews and not familiar with the area. So John has just told us that all this happened around the Sea of Galilee, and then he adds in verse 15, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself, and Jesus had just gone up into one of the, the high peaks that surround the northern area of the Sea of Galilee. I've been there. I got, there, I got to go there on a study trip back in uh, college, and it's now today called the Golan Heights. That's, that's about where it was. So John says that the boat in which the disciples were traveling as Jesus is up in the Golan Heights was about halfway across the sea, and we know, and John tells us, it's about three and a half miles away from land. And John adds, it was evening, so it's dark. And then we pick up a detail that the writer of Mark, Mark, gives us in Mark 6, 48. He said, Mark tells us, and he, Jesus, saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So Jesus, who was up a mountain at least three and a half miles away from the disciples at night, sees them straining. Now, that's a miracle in and of itself without any GPS, right? Okay, now the second part, the obvious miracle, is the miracle of gravity. When you stand on water, first of all, you don't. What happens? You go down. That's right. So Jesus walks on water, and not just a few yards, as skeptics would say, or as others write, that there were stones right beneath the surface for three and a half miles. But apparently he walked over three miles into a deep and turbulent wind-driven sea. And Mark adds that he was going to keep on walking all the way home to Capernaum if they hadn't stopped him. So God enabled people like Moses, and uh, after him came the general Joshua, and he enabled both of them to part the water for Israel so that they could walk over on dry land. Moses in the Red Sea, Joshua in the Jordan River. But none of them ever defied gravity like this and walked on top of the water. The observable laws of science declare that this should not happen, but Jesus, who created and sustains every one of the laws of science, defied those laws, and He did it. They're at His beck and call. Thirdly, the miracle of space and time. Verse 21. Did you, did you catch this? Then they were glad to take Him into the boat, and immediately... The boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, that's nuts. Does it say immediately? And all God's people said, yes, Pete, it says immediately. Over three miles, because they're only halfway across, over three miles are traveled in an instant. A miracle defying, defying the observable laws of time and space. It's probably just as well as, as it, that it was dark. Because <laughs> you can imagine the disciples, like, zoom. You know, like this, is like, this is like before Star Trek. So, like, this is like the transporter room. Beam me up, Scotty, and boom, they're there, right? This is, this is just crazy. This is an amazing miracle. But what is even more amazing is that John focuses our attention 
more on the way Jesus made himself known to the disciples with the classic verse, verse 20, it is I, do not be afraid. That's bigger than the miracle. John is a master at hinting at the meaning below the viewable surface, even when the viewable surface is a miraculous, crazy miracle. And the words of Jesus that he uses here to identify himself could easily, legitimately be translated, I am. Those sound familiar? That's God's own name for himself in the Old Testament, the very words that God used to introduce himself to Moses for the first time out of the burning bush. Jesus is none other than God in human flesh, fully man, fully God, so don't be afraid. Verse 22 and 24, when you read it, it just is basically a summary, a recap of of, uh, telling us what happened with the crowds. The next day they show up for breakfast. (laughs) I'm just, I don't think I'm being skeptical here. I think I'm being honest. Why did they show up? Because he fed us the next, he's going to feed us. This is awesome. Wouldn't you? Come on, come on, be honest with you. If you got a free meal at night, would you not come back in the morning? Come on, be honest. Yes, you would. Don't be sanctimonious with me. But no Jesus, right? So what do they do? They hire boats and they head across because they're getting hungry. No, because they want to be with him. Verse 25, and when they found him on the other side, of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, and he tells us why they had come the next morning, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. See, they were there for breakfast. Jesus is telling them, you've made this all about you. Even the signs that are actually all about me, You've made them about you. Here's what you should be after. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. He rem- this reminds me of what Jesus said to the, to the disciples when they were around the well after the Samaritan woman had head back into town where they were worried about him not having had anything to eat. Remember that? And he said, there's things more important than food. There are things more important than providing for your own physical well-being and safety. God's things. It's like the person running out of a burning building only to notice that when they get outside, there's someone who's unaccounted for. So what do they do? They run back in to rescue them because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, but you could die. It's the right thing to do. Now, these people do understand that Jesus is talking about what God desires. So they do get that because you read in verse 28, they said to him, so, so then, okay, what, what, what are we supposed to do to be doing the works of God? But they did not understand what God desires to provide for each one of us, each one of them and each one of us in this room, grace. Jesus had told them that God's salvation is a gift which the Son of Man will give to you. I'm going to give it to you. You don't got to do nothing. And that all that's required is to believe 
that God sent me. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. But they couldn't get their heads around this. So they said to him, well, then what sign do you do? I mean, it's just like you want to go like this, right? What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They move from what must we do, and Jesus answers them. He says, well, you've got to believe in me. But that's not good enough, and it's not good enough in our world today either. Have you noticed? It's like Jesus died for our sins. All i got to do is believe that and get eternal life. Come on. That's it. The people who want to work for their salvation never get it until God gives it to them. They move on to, okay, then what will you do so that we can believe in you? Show us a sign. And here's the sign we want. Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So first, before we examine Jesus' answer to them, I have to ask the question, who are these people? Really? What more of a sign do you require? Bread multiplied from one boy's lunch to feed up to 20,000 people wasn't good enough. (laughs) You want manna from heaven. (laughs) Jesus That first one that you did yesterday with the bread, that was really cool. But can you up your game a little bit more? How about down from heaven? Jesus said to them, first a correction. Truly, truly, I say to you, by the way, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. He did it then, and he's doing it right now before your eyes. And it's me. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus illustrates who he is now by comparing himself to manna from heaven. And they said to him, okay, give us this bread. Always. They are so like Nicodemus, right? How how can I be born again? I'm a full-grown man. I can't go back and be a baby and come through the birth canal. I mean, it was like... They can't think physically and spiritually at the same time. They probably can't walk and chew gum at the same time. But they can't separate physical good deeds, physical sustenance, physical freedom from the spiritual things of the kingdom of God. God's Son, God's sacrifice, our salvation from eternal death. The Jews following Jesus lived under this system that's so prevalent in our world today. And it had become so corrupted as to suggest to them that religious performance was all that was needed to enjoy friendship with God. Yes, just like our spiritual world that we live in today. These were people who attended church every Sunday. Well, actually, it was Saturday. I'm just comparing it to us. They knew their Bible history. They could even quote from the Bible. And yet these people are the ones who, we'll see next week, are going to walk away from Jesus and are going to reject Jesus as the Christ. They felt safe. They felt comfortable. They felt content in their little theater of religious performance. Don't bug me about my life. 
I'll go to church on Sunday, two out of the four a month, but don't you ever mess with my Monday through Saturday. So Jesus says to them in verse 35, let me clear up this whole thing, this whole bread thing for you. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Basically, the same thing he's communicated to the Samaritans, remember? When he spent a couple of days with them, and these Samaritans eventually believed it. But these Jews, but I say to you, verse 36, that you have seen me and you don't believe. You know why? He tells them, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in the Son should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Their response to this, these Jewish listeners did not struggle to understand the full implication of what Jesus was claiming and saying. So, what did they do? Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread come down from heaven. They said, wait, he's the bread come down from… They got the connection between the manna and he's saying he's the son of God. They, they got that, but they said, isn't this the son of Joseph who father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Despite all that had gone before, the harsh reality of unbelief remained. People will always find an excuse. You, who have come to know Jesus as your Savior, you probably, you may have had an excuse before God broke you down of why this wasn't for you. People may even judge you and use you as their excuse. They could not accept that Jesus was the one. Jesus' response, the most important, in verses 43 through 46, he summarizes all that he said. And in verse 47 and 48, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Done. Okay, do you guys got it? And then Jesus hits them really hard with their own faulty reasoning for suggesting the need for this sign like Moses and the manna in the wilderness. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, verse 49, and they died. They died. And you, you would be satisfied with that kind of manna? Is, is that really all you want out of this life? Is that temporary excitement, that temporary thrill, that temporary moment of sustenance, is that all you think you really need? You are thinking so small. You're so limited, so here and now. This, verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What is it? 
that takes and shapes and affects who we are, that affects how we behave towards each other. In the totality of our being, what is it? We, you and I are so much more than, a, than just a combination of water and chemicals, aren't we? We are not just shaped by automatic DNA responses controlled by the electrical impulses that buzz around and whirl around through the synapses of our brain. We are shaped by all of the influences and experiences that have gone into making us who we are today. In the broadest sense, we are what we eat. Are we not? Not only in how we look, but in who we are. And that's the picture that Jesus is using here when preaching to the Jews in the synagogue of Capernaum. He says in verse 35, I'm the bread of life. He said through that very powerful illustration, you need to eat of me to live, to really live. And for those who didn't understand the metaphor but took him literally, this was a really, really big problem. They disputed amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? But they failed to understand the metaphor. That not only are you what you eat physically, but you are what you eat spiritually. The spiritual is way more important than the physical. But for many of us, as we go through the course of our daily life, oh, the physical just takes on such huge importance, doesn't it? The temporary things that are around us, the things that we work for, live for, strive for, argue over, so many of them are just temporary. The reality is that how, no matter how carefully you take care of your body, no how well you eat, and, and, and you, I mean you should, we should be taking care of ourselves because it's a gift of God, this flesh. But guess what's going to happen one day to me? Tell me. Pete, you're going to, I'm going to die. How? That's exciting. Actually, it is. <laughs> and guess what? You're going to die <laughs> also. And this body's going to stop working one day, but my soul is immortal. God has placed eternity in my heart. Let me close with this. Why don't you rise with me, and we're going to sing and worship God because that's all you can do really after you read His Word. Verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also, he will live because of me. And this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Heavenly Father, we bow before you in utter amazement that you saw fit for many of us in this room to have the light turned on and see Jesus for who he is. We are overwhelmed by just that fact. But we know there's so much more. There is today. And the family, the friends, those that we'll interact with and I pray, Lord, that we would share, live, be bold for you and our Savior, Jesus Christ, through the power of your Holy Spirit that indwells us. 
to feed on you today and that people would see the difference. In Jesus' name, amen.